For Your Inflammation is brought to you by Braze Music Exchange, taking IOUs and random money orders since 1975. Ladies and gentlemen, live from coast to coast, we proudly present For Your Inflammation with Zach and John. We got 106 miles to Chicago, a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Welcome to Four Year Inflammation, a podcast about good movies, better cocktails, and best friends. We're your hosts, Zach Graham. And John Kaplan. This month, we're celebrating April Fool's all month long. Uh, last week, we covered The Great Dictator from 1940, and this and this week, we were jumping 40 years ahead because no comedy movies happened between 1940 and 1980, and it's my show and I say so. This week, we are covering The Fabulous Blues Brothers from 1980. John, I am very shocked you haven't seen this movie, to be Honestly, completely honest. After finally having seen it, I'm kind of surprised that I hadn't seen it either. This was like one of my favorite movies as a kid, so I'm surprised I didn't subject you to this. Yeah, I know. It's like, it doesn't have like the cool factor that like Alien has, you know, when you're like in middle school where you're like, oh that's my fair. god, that's great, that's cool. But it, but it does have appeal. I mean, I loved Monty Python and the Holy Grail at that point in my life. This should have been a natural next step. Not that it's anything like Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's just no. that it has a similar, not energy, but, you know, it's in a similar, it's a comedy. It's a, it's a well-aged comedy. It's definitely over the fucking top. Like, literally, this movie goes from, like, 10 to 200 in, like, 15 seconds. It's also got big time, like, airplane energy. Yeah, I, I would say it's definitely in that vein. Like, it's, it's very silly, almost madcap. Mm-hmm. Like, not quite madcap, because it's still very much based in reality, but, like, the things that are happening are just unfathomable. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, I don't know, like, I just, I always felt like this movie gives off me and you energy. Like, we are definitely, as a duo, very much like Jake and Elwood Blues. Like, we definitely give off tall, skinny, short, fat energy, like, for sure. Yeah, no, I see exactly what you mean. It's been a thing ever since we've known each other, I think. And, oh, uh, yeah. All we have to do is take ourselves way more seriously, and it could be, like, extremely on brand. Dude, <laughs> we should just start a Blues Brothers tribute band, and I think it would probably do better than this podcast. I think that's actually entirely possible, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we both come from a musical background. We can put enough people together to make this happen, I think. Uh, you know, it, it, it could work. It, it could definitely be a thing. So that was the next thing I wanted to go into. You are a jazz and blues kind of guy, uh-huh. correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You so, could say that. So... Did this movie hit like a like a nostalgia for you in any way? Oh yeah, of course. This takes me back to all my favorite uh all my favorite blues artists. You know, you got like a uh, Scumbag Joe and uh Swamp Trash Pete and uh Big Booty Galooty. Uh all the favorites from uh classic Americana blues. Um, you forgot about Half Foreskin Willie. Half Foreskin Willie? That's more of a two skin. <laughs> Two skin. That's a two skin. So wait, okay. So if you have the whole skin over the tip of your dick, that's the foreskin. But like, if if it's any less 
then circumcised its two skins. So, no, 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 no. Four skin is standard length. Two skin is half length. No skin is circumcised. Five skin is when it hangs off the end. The only thing I think we can agree on, I heard someone refer to like like the part of your penis where like the pee comes out. I heard someone call it the piss slit the other day. That's and rough. I think, I think we all need to agree that that's not okay. That's not allowed. No, you can't. You can't say things like that. <laughs> you cannot bring that around here. So, um, th- to 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 bring it back home here, uh, yeah, actually, I do have a bit of a background in jazz and blues. I actually used to play in like a traveling R and B like party band called Liquid Pleasure. Um, Liquid I don't think Pleasure. anybody that listens to this podcast will know who that is, but you can look them up on YouTube, and uh, you'll you'll find it rather humorous that I was playing music with these people for like two years. And, like, you traveled, like, pretty far to play with them, too, didn't you? Yeah, no, I mean, we were, me and the guy that I was playing with, we were, like, uh, well, we were, like, uh, like, road guys. So, like, they'd be like, oh, we're traveling to, I don't know, the Chattanooga area. Me and this guy were in Atlanta, so they'd call us up and be like, hey, we got a gig near Atlanta, come on out and play. And so we go do that. I mean, we traveled, oh, man. Uh, we went all across Alabama, we went all the way out to, like, Charleston, South Carolina, we went up to, like, Asheville, we went to Nashville, like, we, we went to a bunch of places, honestly, and, I mean, it was really cool, and it was really fun, and this kind of took me back there, like, in a lot of ways. Yeah, like, I feel like a lot of blues gigs are definitely, like, a getting the band back together type situation. <laughs> yeah, 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 and, I mean, in order to be good with it, in order to jive with it, like, you have to know, like, the people you're with, you have to have, like, a musical rapport with them, and I think that's, like... That's the fun part about this is putting the people back together because it really just isn't going to work the same if you just reassemble a different group of people. Right. Like everybody knows what they're doing. But like if you don't know that the bass player like I don't know what I'm trying to say, like because I'm not a blues or jazz person. But like if the if the bass player is going to like do something different and you don't know about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People have like uh, like uh, tip offs, you know, like they'll do something when they're ready to do something else. And if you hear that you'll know, like, oh, yeah, we're moving into the next section, go. You know, because, like, it's a little loosey-goosey with blues. It's a little loosey-goosey with jazz. I mean, if you got soloing and stuff going on, if you're just feeling it, you can just keep going and going and going. But when you hear the thing that that person does to, like, kind of cue their way out of a solo or into a solo, you can, like, communicate without communicating, you know? And, like, that's the fun part about it. And I I think that's why it is important to know the other people you're playing with so much. So this brings me to another phenomenon that I... (laughs) I feel like we have to bring up because we're here and I don't know another time I'd be able to bring it up. Do you think that jam bands are on the same level as jazz bands or do you think that jam bands are fucking horrible? Similar phenomenon, uh, not the same thing. I don't think that jam music is bad. Like, I I don't think like it gets a bad rap because like mostly the type of people that are really into jam are like kind of insufferable. But like, I'm I'm, uh, am I sorry? Am I sorry for saying that? Not, no. not really. I mean, you know what you know what I'm talking about. Like, it, it's fine. It's good. Like, it's quality music. If you want something like in the background, it's really great. But like, you know, being like a, a fish follower, you know, like a fish head is like there's a very specific type of energy that comes along with being that type of person. I would rather hang out with a uh, with a like Jimmy with, with a parrot head than I oh. would a fish head. Yeah, no, one hundred percent. Because at least the parrot head, I know that we're going to end up at TGI Fridays and I'm going to get mozzarella sticks. Yeah, there (laughs) are uh, Jimmy Buffett retirement communities now. Well, not Jimmy Buffett retirement communities. Jimmy, like Margaritaville branded lifestyle retirement communities. Which is insane, but not to me. Yeah, they're (laughs) in nice places too. 
Like, it totally makes sense. I hate that it's a thing, but it does totally make sense. I think that he kind of did a thing there, though, where he's like, oh, yeah, so we have this whole, like, lifestyle around, like, Margaritaville, bumming, parahead lifestyle, you know, like, kind of, like, faux on the down low, like, dregs of life, but, like, not really dregs of life. Like, I I hang out around a bar, but I'm also in finance. So, like, it, you, you know what I mean. Like a, like a, like a townie. Like a very specific flavor of townie. But it's a lifestyle that w- you can get to. It is achievable because they have invented a product that is this. Right. Like, if you love the beach and you're a huge piece of shit, you can definitely be a parent head. <laughs> yeah. Those are two two of the criteria, I guess. I mean, we, we're taking, like, a, a serious shot at Jimmy Buffett fans right now. Listen, the intersection between people who go to Dick's Last Resort when they go to Panama City Beach and Parrot Heads is a circle. It's not even a Venn diagram. It's just a circle. <laughs> a They're the overlap. same people. Yeah, you have a red side and a blue side. We're talking about a purple circle. If you... Do not view Margaritaville as the absolute saddest song that has ever been written. You A, don't listen to lyrics, and B, are a terrible person. And why did you guys do this to Jimmy Buffett? He was crying for help, and you didn't help him. You just threw salt at him. That's the thing. Salt. 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 You know, that thing they do at the concert when he's looking for his lost shaker of salt. I literally want to go to a Jimmy Buffett concert, bring a giant bag of salt, and just throw it at Jimmy Buffett when that part comes up. Oh my god. He's a he's a businessman now. Like, he has a net worth of like a half billion dollars. You know what? I can't hate on that. I can't hate on that level of success because, like, you must have done something right. It's kind of like ICP, where it's like, I don't have to like the music, but I can respect the fuck out of the hustle. Yeah, the branding is really important. We are so far off base right now. <laughs> we are dangerously off the rails. Well, here, let's see if I can save it. Um, so speaking of branding, um, so the Blues Brothers have a very interesting brand because not only were they an actual band before this movie came out, they are also like on SNL for like years before this movie happened. Huh. Okay. So this started out, uh, we'll, we'll get into it, but just know, like, there is an SNL history lesson coming up here in a second. Uh-huh. And the only reason I bring it up now is to do one more, like, off-to-the-side conversation, because I feel like you'll enjoy this. Okay, lay it on me. Okay, so in 1982, on Halloween night, John Belushi convinced Lauren Michaels, the creator of SNL, to book the punk band Fear on the show. Um, John Belushi was a huge punk fan, huge fan of Fear, huge fan of the Circle Jerks. Um, So he invited a bunch of punks from CBGBs to come watch the music performance, and they started a mosh pit on live TV in 1982, like Reagan-era, like, ultra-conservative bullshit times. And it was one of the only times that SNL has ever cut the live feed. That is awesome and hilarious. I'm glad that, uh, you know, the the CBGB's crowd got their moment. <laughs> they felt seen. <laughs> yes, for like, for once in the moment they felt seen instead of getting reflected on like really like, you know, underwhelmingly by like a bunch of lame people 20 years later. I'm, I'm pointing the finger at myself. <laughs> that is no. a put down on myself. Look. 
I'm sure CBGB's was just as bad as, like, Studio 54 and anything like that in New York City. Like, at the end of the day, it's a club that people went to where they just kind of pretended to be in the thing. Yeah, 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 like Woodstock 99. Oh, God. We don't have time to talk about Woodstock 99. You know what I do need if we're going to get through this long-ass episode? Oh, what's that? I need you to tell me what cocktail we've got for this week. Nice, nice. How did I know? It's almost like I was prepared for this or something. It's like I've done this a few times, and I just always have one in the pocket for you. And uh, today is no different. Lay it on me. All right. Well, I know what you're expecting. I know what you're thinking. What you're thinking is, uh, hey, John, uh, you're going to give me like an orange whip recipe, right? And the answer is no. That's already a cocktail. So if you have orange juice concentrate and just like whipping cream sitting around, uh, yeah, go ahead and make yourself one. It'd be pretty fun. Uh, I don't do things like that usually. I prefer to keep it a little bit more traditional, but uh, today I'm going to turn it on its head a little bit. Uh, So this cocktail is called The Wrong Glass. The Wrong Glass. The Wrong Glass, in reference to the part of the movie where they go to the French restaurant to get, uh, is there, um, he's their sax player? Their one sax player? Mm-hmm. Yeah, try to get him back from his, uh, his, his job there that he's picked up, and uh, so they ordered the champagne, and uh, Elwood just holds out the glass. It's like a goblet. It's not like a like a um, like a coupe glass that they would normally serve champagne. It was like that's the wrong glass, sir. That's the reference. So <laughs> and he just the, shakes it at him. It, exactly. It's a super pretentious thing to do. So what I wanted to do was take a super like everyman cocktail concept and mesh it together with this high society nonsense and kind of like turn the whole idea upside down. So here's what you'll need. You'll need one shot glass, and you'll need one champagne flute. The trick is to have the shot glass that will fit inside of the champagne flute. So, like, maybe, like, those little things that they give you in communion for the wine? That could work, yeah. I I would recommend getting something actually glass because it will be heavy enough. Like, because you might run into a problem depending on, like, the density of the wine that you have, that it won't actually properly sink into it because it needs to sink into it. Got it. So, well, you're going to need some Brut, you're going to need some Drambuie, Amaretto, Peach Snops, and Angostura Bitters. So, what you're going to do is you're going to take the champagne flute and put in about three ounces of that Brut. So, Brut is a sparkling wine. Brut, champagne, you know, it's a dry, white, sparkling wine. Just, yeah, whatever. Get the barefoot if you want to. You're making cocktails. All right? So, you put the three ounces of champagne, we're going to call it champagne, into the flute. And then you're going to take a shot glass over on the side. You're going to put a half ounce of Drambuie, a half ounce of Amaretto, a quarter ounce of peach schnapps, and a dash of Angostura bitters. And then you're going to do the thing. You're going to drop the shot glass into the champagne flute. Like a boiler maker, but it's the wrong glass. Beautiful. I love sticking it to high society. Yeah, but you know what? It's kind of nice. It actually tastes pretty damn good. I Most things you make... Actually, I would say everything you've made tastes really good. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, That is what I bring to the table on this podcast, so I'm super glad that you're hyped for it. I hope you get the chance to try it, but uh, something tells me that you're maybe not in a place where you're going to want to buy champagne and drambuie for this cocktail only, because I don't think those are two things that you would drink on the regular under normal circumstances. You know, I do have one friend that I see upon occasion, and all she drinks is champagne, so I do make sure to have champagne for her when she comes here. Nice, nice. Okay, well, that's very accommodating of you. I don't think every, like, you're either a person that loves sparkling wine, or you're a person that tolerates sparkling wine. See, I'm just not a wine person in general. Yeah? Yeah, like, I don't know what it is. It's, It's like, wine is like the coffee of alcohol drinks for me. Like, I'm not a big coffee drinker. I'm not a big wine drinker. I don't know what it is. Huh, I see. Uh, well, I am absolutely um, inundated with coffee, like, most of the time. <laughs> see, I prefer nicotine to coffee. 
uh, nah, I'm, I'm good. I, I, I'm definitely sticking with the uh, sticking with the coffee. <laughs> it's probably better. It's probably the more doctor recommended thing to do. Thinking, speaking of things that are not doctor recommended, I'm gonna let our good friend Frank Synopsis into the building to tell us about the Blues Brothers. If you haven't seen the movie, he'll give you a little synopsis. Get it? Get it? It's a bad joke. All right, welcome, Frank. Hey, glad to be here. <laughs> so, Frank. We're talking about the Blues Brothers today. Have you ever spent any time in Chicago? Well, there was actually a period of time in the 80s where I actually tried to move to Chicago. They got some uh, They got some nice parks out there. A little cold, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of used to the cold. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, like, New York City's probably not easy to do in the winter either. No, no, it's not. You know, it's not quite the same, but, you know, it's, it's called the Windy City for a reason. Oh, yeah, like, I'm sure it's frail as you are, Frank, the wind would just take you. No, well, that wasn't really the problem. I, I did get chased out by the National Guard. Oh, it's one of these stories. Okay, oh, yeah, of course. lay it on me. <laughs> well, no, there's not really much to say. I just came into town and, uh, you know, they tried to get me to stop driving. I didn't stop driving and before I knew it, I was playing a real life game of Grand Theft Auto. Ah, Frank, how are you not in a federal penitentiary? I don't know. Uh, they didn't have any room over there at Joliet. <laughs> I think you just outlasted the judges. I think that's what happened here. Anyway, Frank, why don't you tell us about the Blues Brothers? All right. Jake Blues is picked up from Joliet Prison in Chicago by his brother, Elwood. They find out that the Catholic orphanage they grew up in is going to be closed if $5,000 in back taxes are not paid up. The Blues Brothers devise a plan to get the band back together, raise the money, and redeem themselves in the eyes of the nun who raised them, the city of Chicago, and themselves. They're on a mission from God. Perfect. Thank you, Frank. V lovely. I I can't believe that we get you for free every week. Oh, no, of course. I mean, I don't I, I don't exactly work for free. I mean, you know, you ever have a drag through the garden hot dog, Chicago style? I don't want to know what that means. Uh, I mean, it's not that bad. It's just, you know, sometimes you have to improvise if you don't have all the stuff. You can just drag, drag it through the yard outside. <laughs> just a whole carrot. Yeah. Just a whole, just a whole carrot, a little bit of kale salad on there. Yep, that's not a fun. hot. <laughs> that's not a hot dog anymore. But anyway, thank you, Frank. All right, see you later. All right, John, we, we've dilly-dallied enough. We got to get into the shit here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all righty. All right, so let's get this basic info. Like, this is just like if you, this is so you know who the players are, who the characters are that we're going to be talking about. This movie was directed by John Landis, who also directed Animal House, which also featured John Belushi. He also directed An American Werewolf in London. John, have you seen that one? I have not. God damn it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, what about Animal House? I uh, haven't seen Animal House either. I've been putting that one off because I was looking for the right time to watch it. Okay. Let me ask you this. Did you ever go to someone's dorm room where they had that picture of John Belushi in the, like, sweatshirt that says college on it? Uh, no, but I know what you're talking about. Okay, well then, guess what? Congratulations, you've seen Animal House. Oh, wonderful. You've also coincidentally seen every, uh, frat versus college system film. Uh, you you so got a lot accomplished today, buddy. So, uh, between, like, a Blue Mountain State... And, um, oh, like, I a... would, I would absolutely watch Blue Mountain State over this. Really? Over Animal House? Yeah, I've never been in Animal House. I know people like it. I was in a fraternity for, like, six weeks, and I still don't get it. I don't get Animal House. Huh. All right. John, Bel John Belushi is, like, the top-billed actor in the movie, and he has two lines. That's nice. I mean, they do that sometimes. I mean, Bill Lugosi was in movies after he was dead. Well, that, th I feel like that's different. That's, like, posthumous. Yeah, you know. Is that how you um, say that? Yeah, posthumous, yeah. Okay, cool. 
the possumus. Yeah, it's funny because <laughs> you're playing dead, but they're playing you when you're actually dead. <laughs> you know what? At least maybe his family got some money out of it. Oh, no, for sure. The the estate of John Belushi. Or are you estate. talking about Bela Lugosi? Both. You know what? They both deserve... Both. Let's just go ahead and give a big R.I.P. to both. Yes. Okay, let's move on. So the film was written by Dan Aykroyd and John Landis. It was produced by Robert K. Weiss, that poor man. We'll get into it later. Uh, This film stars John Belushi as Jake Blues, Dan Aykroyd as Elwood Blues, Cab Calloway as Curtis. Uh, Cab Calloway was a singer in, like, the 50s. He sang um, Minnie the Moocher, which is, like... Oh, a hearty, hearty, hi. That one. Yeah, the one that's in the movie. If you haven't seen the movie, why are you here? Why? But please, I mean, we're glad you're here. But we're glad you're you? here, for sure. But please take the time to watch this movie. This is It's fucking great. I this love this movie. This one is worth it. Uh, Carrie Fisher as the mystery woman. Uh, Carrie Fisher needs no introduction. And if you asked who Carrie Fisher is, uh, get out of my podcast. Right. Uh, <laughs> quietly grab your phone and just, you know, do that. <laughs> Henry Gibson as the Gruppenfuhrer. Uh, didn't realize I'd pick two movies with Nazis in it in a row. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> the, it was pure coincidence. I absolutely forgot the Nazis were in blue. Brothers, I forget every time. <laughs> How many times has this been a problem for you? Um, every time I've watched it. <laughs> I mean, at least they try to run them over. Well, yeah, they. T- <sighs> it's definitely not the same as like. No, I mean, it kind of is the same as last time because they didn't really like them last time in any way either. <laughs> no one likes the Nazis. If you're a Nazi, shut the fuck up. So Henry Gibson was also the voice of Wilbur in the Charlotte's Web cartoon from the seventies. Uh, you know what, man? Why not? <laughs> Why not? All right. So this is the fun part. So this movie has a shit ton of cameos, like an absolute fuck ton that we don't have time to talk about all of them individually. So I'm just going to do a little breakdown. So we got James Brown, Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, Twiggy, Steven Spielberg, Frank Oz, Mr. T, Paul Rubens, five years before Pee Wee Herman came out. And oddly enough, John Candy. This is the only movie that John Candy and John Belushi appear in the same scene together because they actually didn't like each other very much because they often competed for the same roles. That is great. I mean, I'm glad that, like, comedy fans of this age, like, got to see it once because I know that's, like, a big problem. Like, I want to say there's a similar problem with Chris Farley, where he doesn't appear in the same movies that people would like to see him in. Chris Farley was, like, he is, him and John Belushi are, like, star-crossed brothers, in a Mm -hmm. way, like, very, very similar, like, trajectory, very similar rise to stardom, very similar tragic end. And, like, John Belushi was, like, uh, Chris Farley's, like, pseudo mentor not that they ever met but like that's that's who he wanted to be and i mean i can't blame him when you watch a movie like this like when i was a kid i just wanted to be jake blues i mean like if you get it's not that's not a bad person to pick no like (laughs) he's loyal he um (laughs) he's smooth he's cool he can sing what else do you want yeah he wears sunglasses inside at night He wears sunglasses for the literal entirety of the movie, except for maybe five seconds when he's trying to not be murdered by his ex-fiancee. 
Right. Which is probably the first time that she saw him without sunglasses. As a matter of fact, uh, I didn't put this in the notes, but like, you know, that scene where uh, Carrie Fisher is looking at like the the flamethrower instruction manual. Yeah. So she has pictures of her and uh, Jake Blues. And it's like they're on the beach and he's still wearing sunglasses. Like every picture he still has the sunglasses on. I don't understand why the picture with him at the beach wearing sunglasses is weird. That seems like the place to wear sunglasses. I understand. But what I'm saying, I guess what I'm saying is like the sunglasses never come off. I see. I see. Uh, the cameos were really cool. I actually thought that was really awesome. Um, we were watching the uh, the gospel scene. And uh, I, I think my wife made some kind of comment about James Brown. We didn't realize it was James Brown at the time. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, he's doing this James Brown thing. It's actually really cool. Oh, wait, no, th- that is James Brown. That's why <laughs> it's a James Brown thing. That's just James Brown. It's literally James Brown. <laughs> I'm so glad that you guys didn't realize it was James Brown at first. Yeah, at first I was like, oh, man, that hair, that's just... That's just James Brown. That's not a James Brown bit. That's James Brown. (laughs) That's literally James Brown. (laughs) Another big R.I.P. That one hurt being an Atlanta boy. That that one hurt. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right. So the production company and distribution company was Universal Pictures. Um, The release date was June 20th, 1980. Uh, the runtime uh, for the standard theatrical is 133 minutes. Uh, the extended is 148 minutes. Watch the extended, please. Yeah. <laughs> um, the budget for the movie was $27.5 million, and the box office was $115.2 million. That's pretty good. <laughs> Not a home run, but still, you know, in the black. They're damn near five times over their budget. Right, but this movie could have been so much bigger, and we'll talk about it later. But first, and I know this is going to be much of the chagrin of our Jonathan, we're going to have to do some SNL history. I don't have a problem with SNL, I just haven't crossed paths with it. Fair enough. Well, now you have. Now you have. So, because you've never watched SNL, I also have a lot to explain to you, and probably to the audience. Here we go. SNL was conceived by Lorne Michaels in 1975 to replace existing reruns of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. So, before Saturday Night Live came out, they would just replay old episodes of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, instead of having just something on. Right, new content. Why make new new content? Right, and the only reason that they wanted to make something new was because Johnny Carson wanted to start using the reruns during the week so he wouldn't have to tape as much. Mm -hmm. So, Johnny Carson getting lazy and getting old is why we got SNL, and I think that's amazing. All right, Um, sure. (laughs) The original cast of SNL included Lorraine Newman, Jane Curtis, Gilda Radner, Another big R.I.P. That was Gene Wilder's uh, wife. Also oh, R.I.P. Uh, Garrett Morris, Chevy Chase, and the stars of our film, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. Uh, Belushi was originally a hard sell for the program because of his rowdy nature. Like I said, like he was kind of a punk. He was kind of a drunkard, kind of a druggie. They, like, they didn't know if they wanted to take the chance on Belushi, but eventually uh, the producers were convinced to just put him on there. And thank God they did. He's an improv actor. What did they want him to be? <laughs> exactly. You would be shocked at how many actors, like, are just fucked up 98% of the time. I, Especially comedy to be somebody actors. somebody else for a living. Exactly. Who am I? I'm just an amalgamation of the characters I've created. It sounds like a... 
it, that, that just sounds like a bad movie. Right. Does art imitate life? Is life imitating art? Charlie Chaplin from last week. Let us know. We need let to know. Let us know. <laughs> please, Charlie, if you're going to come back in the zombie apocalypse, please only come back to let us know that. Yes. So, Belushi and Aykroyd became writing partners on the show due to shared interests, including, you guessed it, the blues. I'm floored. <laughs> I'm shocked. So, Aykroyd fell in love with the blues in his hometown of Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, at a club called Le Hibule, which is uh, French for the owl, and I don't know if I said it right, and I don't give a shit. Uh, there he saw acts such as Muddy Waters, James Cotton, Otis Spann, and Pennett Perkins. Huh. Alright, I mean... I didn't really think of anywhere in Canada as being like a blues hub, but I mean, if anywhere, why not Ottawa? Why not Ottawa? Why not Toronto? Why not Quebec? Quebec. Or uh, Vancouver. Vancouver. <laughs> I feel like those are the only places anyone knows in Canada. Like, I feel like there's like, it's Saskatchewan in Canada. Yes, Saskatchewan okay. is in Canada. <laughs> Where else would it be? Minnesota? Look, listen, we don't need Minnesota either. I, <laughs> so I don't give a shit. No, I'm just kidding, Canada and Minnesota. You can stay as long as you join the fight to get rid of Ohio. I, uh, what? <laughs> what? What? Where? What? How? Have you have you been to Ohio? Yes, I've been to Ohio. I've been we to Mount Vernon. We I had to go by Cleveland, and I could see it, and I could probably smell it too if I had rolled the windows down to check. We don't need that fucking horrible state. If you live in Ohio, get out. <laughs> we love you people from Ohio. We we just want to turn Ohio into the national landfill. I don't fucking love you. Anyway. Oh, <laughs> Belushi took a liking to the blues from Aykroyd while hanging out in Aykroyd's Holland Tunnel Blues Bar that he rented not long after joining SNL. So it's like a little like blues bar club that basically all the people from SNL, like the hosts and the musical guests, like they would all go there and get fucked up after the show. Oh, that's fun. So Aykroyd showed Belushi, you know, the blues and Belushi showed Aykroyd punk. And so I think... There is a certain level of, like, punk coolness to the Blues Brothers that I think that, like, got incorporated there a little bit. Yeah, I would say so. Also of note, while working on Animal House in Oregon, Belushi saw harmonica player Curtis Saldago and said that the Blues finally, like, clicked for him. Like, this is where the Blues Brothers truly, like, began to form. He said that he was getting bored with rock and roll and never wanted to be a rock and roll singer, but he absolutely wanted to be a blues singer after that. This is a um, this is a big move. It's a huge move. That is a big move. I mean, I, I think it's like a natural next step because, like, I, I mean, blues exists in that gap between jazz and rock. Correct. And I mean, I, it was kind of a linear thing, you know. Like you had jazz, and then you had blues, you like and jazz? then you had rock, because like you, you know how it is. Mm -hmm. It all comes from the same place, right? Or at least it's all like the same, like thought process right evolution evolution correct so um belushi and Aykroyd actually played proto blues brothers in an snl sketch where they played a blues b duo in a sketch called howard shore and his all b band howard shore like the guy that wrote the music for lord of the rings correct he was the original music director for snl all right sure i mean why not why not just dump that on top of the catalog too 
Exactly. I mean, why not at this point? Like, Howard Shore, maybe the greatest composer? I don't know. I mean, you got a bunch of John Williams fanboys out there. He did Harry Potter. Look, listen, John Williams, I'm tired of it. Like, I know it's going to be great. I want something where I don't know it's going to be great. Huh. All right. I mean, <laughs> sure. I, I, Howard I want- Shore can't be that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know why, but this is remind. Have you seen uh, the Blue Harvest Family Guy thing? Yes, <laughs> where, where they accidentally killed John Williams, and they're like, "Oh fuck!" Now we got to finish this with Danny Elfman. I yeah, uh, <laughs> it's funny. We we talked about Danny Elfman during Scrooge too. <laughs> yes, we did. He, he always just makes his way in here somehow. I mean, it's Oingo Boingo looking ass. I fucking love Danny Elfman. <laughs> Anyway, we have to move on. There's so much to cover. There is a surprising amount of content for this movie. I hope you're ready. Um, they then perf- so they then perform with Art Garfunkel on SNL in the now iconic Blues Brothers suit. So they didn't call themselves the Blues Brothers, but they did have their first official performance playing with Art Garfunkel on the show. At this point in history, Art Garfunkel is already a known sum. He's like famous. Right, so, like, Simon and Garfunkel, like, uh, The Sound of Silence, you know, like, disturbed, fucked up. Ah, yeah. I... (sighs) They fucked that song up. I'm sorry. It comes in a long line of, like, um... For for lack of a better term, um... Like, douchecore bands? Like, doing covers (laughs) that people didn't ask for? I would say this is first, and then probably that Limp Biscuit cover of Faith is second. Uh, yeah, or, um, Bad Wolves, uh, the Zombie by the Cranberries cover. Oh, I, that was too soon. That was, that was absolutely opportunistic. They didn't need to do that. No, nobody <laughs> asked for that. No, nobody wanted it. The original song was great. Why take a song, like, why take attention away from a poor woman who just died <laughs> and sing about a song that's talking about, like, a, like, an actual conflict going on in a country that you don't live in. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? It is very interesting. I, I, we're, again, off base. I don't mean to be, like, a a a slam disturbed. I don't think they're a bad band. They just didn't need to do that. They absolutely didn't need to do that. So, after they performed with Art Garfunkel, they formed the Blues Brothers, officially, uh, with several uh, local New York City musicians and some members of the SNL band. Uh Uh-huh. Um, Ackroyd, uh, based Elwood off of Donnie Walsh, and Belushi, based Jake off of Hawk Walsh. Uh, the name the Blues Brothers actually came from Howard Shore. That's super creative, Howard Shore. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is, like, it sounds cool, it's so simple, but, like, really, it's just really dumb. Like, I feel like anybody could have came up with that. Yeah, like, imagine, like, you're gonna do, like, a movie like this, but you change the genre to, like, hip-hop, so you're like, Rap Brothers. The Rap Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> like, that just, that sucks. The Bluegrass Brothers. The Bluegrass Brothers. Oh, man. You just do bluegrass covers of Blues Brothers covers of actual blues songs? That's too many holes. Yes. <laughs> That's too many black holes. Um, so Ackroyd and Belushi would perform as the Blues Brothers on SNL periodically and perform in real blues clubs. They released a live album in 1978 called Briefcase F- Full of Blues and another live album in 1980, Made in America, which features the ever-popular Soul Man. Ah, uh, the Sam and Dave vehicle. How many times have I played that song and almost passed out from blowing the saxophone too hard? 
I bet it's a lot. It is. It's fun. It's fun. It's a good time. It's a good Tons time. Of energy. Uh, I want to say, uh, hold on, I'm coming makes an appearance in this movie, too. You used to play that one a lot, too. Did you grow a soul patch when you were in that band? Uh, no, I actually had a beard the, pretty much the whole time. Okay, well, you know what? That works, too. Beard, soul patch, whatever you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get into the production. Belushi had become a big name star in 1978 with not only the Blues Brothers touring, being on SNL, but also being in Animal House, and at one point having the number one album, the number one show, and the number one movie in America. That is, uh, that's a significant pedigree. That's like the platinum achievement from PlayStation. It, d- exactly. Like, that. that's like the biggest thing you can get. Like, I think, like, only a handful of people have been able to do that throughout history, and John Belushi's one of them. Ah, the more you know. So a bidding war to buy the film rights for the movie was nearly won by Paramount Pictures, but it was taken by Universal at the last minute. I see. So they're going, oh, I need $150,000, $150,000, $150,000, oh, we got $160,000, back sold, $160,000. Correct. Uh, the film rights were actually sold without a script. That's how hard they believed in this. Just the idea. Just the idea of a Blues Brothers movie. Uh, however, Ackroyd had written about 400 pages worth of backstory about the Blues Brothers. You mean which- to tell me that there is lore? There is 400 pages. There is a entire, like, third of the Lord of the Rings saga that is just Blues Brothers' backstory. So you it got is, Re- Return of the King, but it's just Jake and Elwood Blues rambling through Chicago slugging night train. You are absolutely correct. It is referred to as the Tome. He didn't have to do that. <laughs> he didn't. <laughs> Too far. Yeah. Too far. Bear, that's fun for Dan Aykroyd, though. That seems like something he'd be really into. <laughs> Jesus doesn't deserve this. No, he does not. <laughs> so Aykroyd didn't know how to write a script, so he wrote a narrative-style novel that was about 370 pages. He's he an did- actor. I know. He wrote Ghostbusters not five years later. I... <sighs> <laughs> Uh, he gave the second tome to John Landis, who in two weeks converted the tome into a script ready for shooting. I mean, I guess it, there was no internet, so, like, if you just didn't have scripts around to, or, like, screenplays around to read, like, the concept might be kind of hard to grasp, but, like, dude. <laughs> well, he didn't know how to, like, turn a narrative into into a script like it actually is kind of a skill to be able to jump back and forth between the two yeah but like i said he's an actor right so he's obviously seen scripts before like imagine that your job like your your day job is um a diesel mechanic so you work on like big machinery but you don't know how to change the oil on your car i understand what you're saying what <laughs> like what is that I think I think the thing you have to think about here is how much money is at stake and if he wrote the script bad like they could lose the whole thing yeah they bought the whole film rights on just the idea <laughs> but if you turn in a bad script they're gonna just like ask for the money back uh, look they can hire somebody they already they already put the money up for it I know I know we have to move on though Good for you, Dan Aykroyd. I'm happy for you. So the budget for the film was also up for debate. If you don't have a script, you can't make a budget. Uh, the studio said $12 million at first, and John Landis said, uh, more, how about $20 million? Uh, We'll get back to this later, because this is a point of, like, contention. All right, I- I'm shocked. 
Uh, the studio also didn't want to include Aretha Franklin because she hadn't had a hit in a few years. Uh, Acro- Dan Aykroyd threatened to walk if they wouldn't let him have Aretha Franklin. Okay, I mean, sure. Carrie Fisher was also coincidentally Dan Aykroyd's fiance at the time. Uh, they became engaged during pre-production after Aykroyd gave her the Heimlich maneuver. Um, I have to assume life. that this is just like an actual thing he had to do. Yes. They were just chilling out and be like, hey, uh, I can give you the Heimlich maneuver if you want. Oh, I haven't had a Heimlich in a while. I we, There's too much Nazism <laughs> in the movie already to start talking about Heimlich. <laughs> or is filming. that Heinrich? Whatever. Moving on. Whatever. <laughs> so filming began in July 1979. Uh, filming commenced without a final budget. Never a good sign. And a month in, the studio came back with, uh, hey, you know what? We'll do it for $17.5 And John Landis said... Oh, we've spent that already. Where is this money coming from? Oh, we're getting there. (sighs) (laughs) So first of all, filming got behind due to Belushi either not showing up on set or sleeping while on set due to his massive cocaine habit. It's pretty on brand for the late 70s, early 80s. Oh, yeah. Um... But it wasn't just Belushi doing cocaine. Uh, pretty much everyone was doing cocaine. Uh, Dan Aykroyd said that a portion of the budget of the film was actually set aside for cocaine. What is this, the CIA? I don't know. They actually had a bar built on the set called the Blues Bar for the cast, crew, and friends, where cocaine was also sold. So they were buying cocaine and selling it on set. Where is this lawless land? <laughs> is this just Hollywood in the 80s? This has to... What this is was in that? Chicago. This was filmed on location in Chicago, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Oh, my God. Okay, so, uh, you know what? Sure. (laughs) Another fun thing is that Belushi was known as the black hole on set. No. (laughs) Not for the the reason you're thinking. Um, He'd actually lose his Blues Brothers sunglasses after nearly every take. They went through about 200 sunglasses because he would just take them off and forget where he put them. But at the point you get the sunglass pair number 134, you just start accidentally finding the ones that you lost last time. I wonder how much of it, it that's what it was, was they would find it and just tell them it, tell them it was a new pair of sunglasses. Unbelievable. Why does he, he doesn't need it to be a new pair. Whatever. It's fine. It's cool. <laughs> um, another interesting thing, John Wayne's son, Ethan Wayne, was a stunt driver on this shoot. This is quite a movie to be a stunt driver on. <laughs> if we're getting there, too. Uh, like we said, the, it was filmed on location in Chicago. Uh, in order to get that permission, Ackroyd and Belushi actually donated $50,000 to local charities. This is so, like, back-asswards that I'm really starting <laughs> to think that this is like a CIA psyop. Like, this movie was built by the government, and that's where the money's coming from. It's like some kind of, like dark cold war budgetary fund they just wanted to see how much cocaine people could make and see if they could still make a good movie that's all oh they my wanted God. this is an mk ultra psyop <laughs> don't tell um dan Aykroyd that he might believe that he's the one doing it <laughs> so um one of the most crazy scenes in this movie is the mall car chase scene where if you if you haven't seen this bit of the movie they literally have a car chase through a shopping mall. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that um, mall, ch- that was in the version you watched, right? Yeah, of course. 
Okay, I'm just making sure because you sounded surprised for a second, and I was like, uh oh. <laughs> no, no, no. I have to ask up front though. Is this the same mall that Dawn of the Dead was filmed in? No, that mall is in um, Monroeville, PA. Oh, hey, just right outside of Pittsburgh. Nice. I'm glad you had that piece of trivia on tap. It literally, it's one of the first things people in Pittsburgh will tell you. That, <laughs> um, is that that mall was where they filmed Dawn of the Dead? Yeah, I actually don't think it's, I think it might not be standing anymore. Neither is this mall in this movie. Um, It was called the Dixie Square Mall, and it had already been closed for years by the time they got here. That's rough. Um, And actually, that building was not demolished until 2012. So it just sat there unoccupied? Correct, and I'm assuming heavily damaged from this movie. Uh, you know what? Work with what you got. Well, who just has an empty... No, this is another one of those the CIA things. This is another <laughs> one of the CIA things. The CIA had this building just sitting there for various projects that they needed. This might have been like a CIA black site where they just like torture Soviet-like prisoners. Bro, this movie gets so much crazier. I don't think you understand. Oh my god. <laughs> let's move on. Let's let's get into it. Hit first. Okay, so while we're on the mall car chasing, uh, most of the brands agreed to be in the film, but some of them said that they prefer for their product to not be demolished by the car. Because, you know, Kellogg's doesn't want you to know that their cereal boxes can get run over by a car. Look, Kellogg, you can't <laughs> you can't have a product designed to make people stop jerking off and then get mad when people hit it with a car. Listen, I can either jerk off or I can waste my money destroying your cereal box with my car for it's those your you, choice for those of you listening that don't know kellogg's invented cornflakes because they thought that it would stop people from masturbating same thing with pretzels oh my god i thought <laughs> wait. no it's not it's not a, it's not a carbohydrate podcast listen all i'm saying is when i'm jerking off i eat annie ann's pretzels I <laughs> sponsor of today's podcast <laughs> no they're not please they should be should be sponsored should be sponsored not sponsored should be jerk off with annie ann anyway let's get back to cars um 60 police cars were bought for 400 dollars each for the film there were a bunch of other cars so in total 103 cars were destroyed in this film that's nice that's good i mean <laughs> I guess it's true. What he says in the movie is that you can get a car at a bargain price from a police auction. <laughs> I guess so. The record was actually not broken until 1998 by what movie other than Blues Brothers 2000, where they destroyed 104 cars. Uh, they knew what they were doing. Oh, they absolutely knew what they were doing. Uh, but unfortunately, both were outdone by G.I. Joe Rides of Cobra, which destroyed 112 cars. This is the type of stuff we don't get with CG. Exactly. Like, destroy real cars. Bring back real destruction in films. Right. <laughs> so the final chase scene had the Bluesmobile go at 118 miles per hour. They only got two chances to shoot this. That's all the city of Chicago would give them. That's awesome. I'm really glad that the city of Chicago was willing to, like, hoe out their streets for this movie. I'm so glad. We got such a good movie out of this. I... <laughs> So, unfortunately, their time in Chicago came to an end because of Belushi's drug habits. John Belushi's wife and John Landis and Dan Aykroyd and Carrie Fisher, of all people, who also had a pretty bad drug habit. R.I.P. Big R.I.P. Love you, Carrie. They they all had to tell him, look, you are doing way too much cocaine. We're not sure how you're alive, 
you need to go back to L.A. to finish this movie. And he went, okay. I... As he bleeds out of both nostrils, like, profusely. They have a Doesn't bar even realize. on set <laughs> that serves cocaine. She don't like, she don't like cocaine. Um, cocaine. Um, <laughs> so everything was going well in L.A. Until it came time where they were going to film the big concert scene at the end of the film, John Belushi was riding a skateboard and broke his fucking knee. That's great. But you know what? It's nothing a little Hollywood magic can't fix. An orthopedic surgeon brought was brought in to anesthetize Belushi's knee so he could film the scene as planned. So instead of doing the responsible thing, they're just like, you know what? Show goes on. I know it doesn't matter if we film it now or if we fill in the, like 10 weeks when your bones knit, but um, we're just going to shoot you full of this shit and uh, we're going to we're going to do it live. <laughs> Fuck it. We'll do it live. We're gonna we're gonna do a Bill O'Reilly style, um, cocaine and everything. Oh, I don't Lord. know if Bill O'Reilly does cocaine. Uh, I mean, who cares? <laughs> um, boomers, let us know how you feel about that. Uh, so the budget rose to twenty seven point five million by the end of filming. Universal was absolutely fucking pissed. Look, did Universal not know about the cocaine bar? They absolutely did not. I, uh, what? How do you not know? What? what who, uh, it's not it's, a secret. <laughs> they only started talking about it like two decades after the fact. So they just truly just let them go. Like they're just truly like, oh yeah, man, here's seventeen point five million. They're like, well, I mean, we already did that. And they're like, okay, and then they just let them go to twenty seven point five million unadulterated <laughs> like cocaine rampage through. Chicago. Oh my god. I can't even imagine. I can't imagine spending that amount of money on any drug. <sighs> Just, can you imagine even spending like $6,000 on like, let's say beer. Do you know how much beer that is? I mean, uh, we could do some quick math here. I mean, what are we talking about? What are we talking about? Keystones? Okay, let's say you're buying 30 packs. They're $25. Not even. A 30 rack of Keystone is 15 bucks. They're 50 cents a pop. So Anyway, uh, <laughs> anyway, this is an absolute dick shit ton of beer. Now imagine spending, you know, probably somewhere close to a million dollars in cocaine. I just, you know what? They got their money back. <laughs> they did they did they did let let's continue so the film actually had trouble being released uh because the man's theater company at the time the largest movie theater chain like within like the west and the midwest uh refused to show the movie in predominantly like neighborhoods because you know the 80s sure um <laughs> This meant the movie, the movie's release in the Midwest and the West were severely limited. Like, this movie pretty much only played at, like, local theaters, like mom and pop theaters, or, like, art house theaters. Huh, this interesting. Movie. I mean, I guess it makes sense. I, I don't understand what the big deal is. I mean, we got, like, John Belushi over here. He's got, like, a Neverland ranch of cocaine, and, like, that's cool but they can't show the movie in regular theater they just thought it was too like offensive to white people it stars correct white people. exactly it doesn't make any sense it's because i guess and please don't please no one ever use this as like a sound clip to like prove that i'm racist 
or something like that. I literally think what it was was there were too many black people per capita in the movie. Uh, so they were just like, there's too many black people. The white people are going to get all uh, touchy about it, so we can't screen it. Correct. H- who's the one making that call, though? Do they have metrics for this? Are they doing market research? I don't know. Like, either way, it's racist. I yeah, no, it's horrible. <laughs> Let's not split hairs here. <laughs> there's Nazis in the movie. I know, John, I know, I know. The 80s doesn't make sense. They elected Ronald Reagan. Like, there was lead in the paint. Nobody knew what the fuck was going on. <sighs> <laughs> So the box. <laughs> so, like I said in the beginning, like this movie grossed more than the budget, but it was not the blockbuster it could have been. Um, and the box office, like most of that money, actually came from overseas. Believe it or not, that's kind of funny because this does seem like a uniquely American experience in this movie. I mean, like, oh yeah, this is not something you're going to see an awful lot of anywhere else. And I mean, that's just partly because it's like, I mean, the, the country bunker. Where else? Where else is there going to be the country bunker? Exactly, where the the good old boys are supposed to be playing. You know what I've, like, in this movie, like, where they, they're throwing the beer bottles at, like, the, um, like, the cage that yeah. they're playing in? Do people actually do that? Because that sounds horrible. I mean, I'm not gonna lie and say that I would, like, shy away from playing music in a place like that. It sounds kind of fun, but only if you're in, like, a, like a, like a speed metal band. Exactly. Like, it doesn't seem like something that would happen at a country bar. Like, at a country bar, I just imagine, like, people, like, crying into their whiskey and clogging their arteries. I don't imagine them becoming hostile. I mean, and they were worried about offending the white people. I know. It's like, everyone that's not white should be offended by white people. Absolutely. I just... <laughs> it different world. It was a pre-9-11 world. We'll chalk it up to that. I guess so. <laughs> Is it any different? Is it any better? Anyway... Another weird dink is this movie opened against The Empire Strikes Back, which also starred Carrie Fisher and Frank Oz. I... Can we say that Empire Strikes Back stars Frank Oz? He's fucking Yoda! Yeah, but like... I mean, I guess. Yeah, but... <laughs> listen, I guess it's different listen, because like, he is the puppeteer and also doing the voice of him, correct? Correct. Okay, so that's I guess that's a little bit different. Nowadays it would be like, okay, yeah, like there's a voice actor that does Yoda, and that's, like, that's just how it is. But he was doing the whole nine. He was doing the whole nine, and like... Listen, you're not you're not 12 years old anymore, John. You have to know Yoda is a puppet and he was puppeteered by someone and they deserve credit. You like you can't just credit Yoda as Yoda anymore. I anymore. That that was a thing at one point. <laughs> I don't fucking know. Look, man, <laughs> I I I get it. It's a it's puppeteering, you know. It, it, I mean, what, what the Dark Crystal came out not too much longer after this, didn't it? Correct. We have to cover that at some point on here. Uh, uh not exactly in our vein. I've seen it like three times. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah, wife favorite. Wife favorite. Oh, that is right. She's talked to me about the Dark Crystal before. Uh, have you been to the Center for Puppetry Arts in Atlanta? They have a shit ton of Dark Crystal stuff. Uh, well, d- uh, you tell her that. We're going to have to go. I, I mean, I told her that she's very close to Disneyland and you still haven't taken her there. COVID anyway. was killer. <laughs> And you know what, man? I'm going to do that thing that everybody else is doing. Be like, oh, yeah, you know, COVID. And uh, yeah, no, no, I ain't doing COVID. Let's move on. 
<laughs> so the film was released on VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, and 4K Blu-ray, which I picked up specifically for this podcast. If you have access to a 4K TV and a 4K Blu-ray player, absolutely pick this one up. You can pick it up for like 15 bucks. It is absolutely fucking gorgeous. They did a great job with the restoration. Just mwah, chef's kiss right on the asshole. I love you know- it. It, it does seem like a movie that could also be highly appreciated in VHS. Oh, absolutely. There, There is something about watching something in VHS that, like, like, especially horror movies. Like, most horror movies will never feel the same unless you're watching it on VHS. Right, right. Night of the Living Dead on VHS. The way to watch that movie. I absolutely agree. Although I do like my Criterion Edition that I have. It looks very, very nice. All about this Criterion Edition. Does that mean that it's on uh, HBO Max? Um, I do believe it is on HBO Max, actually. They just buy all the good stuff. It's, bro, HBO Max is going to take over Netflix. Good. Good, because Netflix has been slipping. $20 for fucking 4K. Fuck off. Anyway... Let's talk about the legacy of this movie and not the legacy of Netflix. Right. So in the late 80s and early 90s, the movie was actually became kind of a cult classic. It was like a regular of like the midnight screening circuit, like along with Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, That doesn't surprise me at all. It definitely has that feel. It does. Like, I I could imagine watching this at midnight and just, like, screaming all the lines back at the movie. Because this movie does have a lot of good one-liners. It does have good one-liners. The rewatch value is extremely high, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You'll notice something different every single time. we, We have come to the sad part of this. This is kind of known as Belushi's film. And that is because he unfortunately died of a heroin and cocaine overdose in 1982 so i mean this was just after he had number one movie number one television show number one album literally four years later that is that is really really sad actually it is absolutely just fucking bonkers so he could have just been on top of his career were it not for the substance abuse problems yeah like he he just fell into that life man and just never got out you want to know what a strange co- there's one more strange coincidence I have to tell you about with this movie. So, one of the stores demolished in the mall car chase scene was a record store. The main advertisement on that storefront was for a Robin Williams comedy recording. Robin Williams was one of the last people to talk to John Belushi before he died. Man, Robin Williams has been everywhere. Dude, we need to do a whole month of Robin Williams movies. I miss Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. We could do Flubber. Oh, God. finally, we do a Disney movie. Oh, never mind. <laughs> we already did. We did robots. We did do robots. We got we got some we got some Rob we we got some Robin Williams in here. So just to finish up here, uh, the film, of course, did get a sequel in 1998. Uh, the Blues Brothers 2000, uh, which replaced Belushi with John Goodman, not as Jake Blues, but as a different character. I see. I mean, what are you going to do? Like, what really, what are you going to do? Exactly. Like, uh, they killed off Jake's character, like, off screen, and then brought in this other character. I guess Um, they're kind of, like, rough around the edges, alley cat type people anyway, like, in the movie. So, like, I guess it's not completely off-brand for one of them to no longer be alive. But, I mean, that's just kind of, like... Uh, you can count on probably 15 hands the amount of times they probably should have died in this movie. Oh, yeah. Both both on screen and off. For sure. So, yeah. Carrie Fisher shoots a rocket launcher at them. 
literally takes a flamethrower to a propane tank in front of them. That whole, that whole fucking, like, restaurant that was right across from it, that whole thing should have been demolished. You know, I, they just go flying up into the sky in the telephone booth, like, Doctor Who, fall down like nothing happened, pick up all the change, like it's a freaking wishing fountain full of gas. (laughs) Oh, look, coins. Uh, They gotta Um, be like $7.58 worth of change right here. (laughs) <laughs> it's like in scott pilgrim where he's like oh shit it's not enough for bus fare <laughs> what is this frank synopsis <laughs> don't mention him if you speak of the devil he shall come ah scoogeely man <laughs> oh f- no we don't have time for scoogeely man um last two points here um in 2020 the film was put into the national archive so this movie will be preserved for generations and generations to come until the fall of man just like Shrek. Just like Shrek. I cannot believe Shrek is in the archives. They said, you know what? You know what people are going to need to understand about people from the early 2000s? Shrek. They were right. <laughs> they are right. We deserve it. The other interesting point of note, and this is the last one, the Blues Brothers still perform today, always with Ackroyd, but they actually switch between John Goodman and Jim Belushi. Of course, John Belushi's brother. Uh, they performed at Ackroyd's House of Blues Chain and also mostly charity events. Oh, that's actually really, really awesome. I'm kind of glad they're doing that John Bonham thing where they get John Bonham's son in there to do drums for, like, the Led Zeppelin reunion. Oh, absolutely. Like, I think that's so cool. And, like, J- Jim Belushi is just as famous an actor as John was. I mean, like, you know, according to Jim was, you know, Nick at Night Central. Right, right, right. It's kind of <laughs> like a uh, Lon Chaney, Lon Chaney Jr. Exactly. They complement each other, except they're brothers and not daddy son. D- daddy son? Daddy son. Don't like it. <laughs> you don't have to like it, but this episode does have to be over. John, how do you feel about knowing the absolute batshit story behind Blues Brothers? It's a, it's a movie that deserves it, frankly. Like, it's just really oh, great. Yeah. It's it's funny. It's got a lot of rewatch value. Like, yeah, it's a little rough around the edges, but it's an R-rated comedy from the 80s. I mean, come on. Like, it, it's a good time. If you like movies like Airplane, you'll love this. It has more substance. It, it's far less wacky, and it's got, like, an actual plot, which is great. I mean, it's, it's kind of a redemption story, but, like, at the same time, like, they don't change. <laughs> they're, they're, no. just, they're just being themselves and i mean it it is really well done and to know that like they didn't really like have a script at first and like they didn't even really have like it was a concept that they sold like like movie rights they sold like I, it's it, it's awesome like it, it is a movie with a backstory that's as big as itself also cocaine bar yeah cocaine bar <laughs> i mean sure <laughs> it was the 80s man things things were weird things were different <laughs> The Blues Brothers, for sure not a CIA psyop. (laughs) Mayhaps. Mayhaps. Big if true. Big if true. (laughs) All right. So that's going to pretty much do it for us here on 4-Year Inflammation. We've had some five-star reviews, uh, you know, trickling in here and there. I'm seeing some more and more views coming up. Keep it up, guys. We love you. We love, we quote-unquote love our fans. You guys are the best. Thank you. Yes, so good. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you for supporting this absolute horse shit. My, my fiancé thanks you so much. Yes, the families, <laughs> the families behind the man, behind the myth, behind the legend. <laughs> 
Jesus Christ. Alright, and you know where to find us on the socials. We're for your inflammation everywhere. If it's an at situation, it's at inflammation for you. Uh, maybe we'll start doing some TikTok soon. Yeah. It's, it's, that's what the kids like, right? It's like the best like free advertisement right now is the fucking TikTok. How about you get lost in the sauce? A man can be drenched in the sauce, but he can also be lost in the sauce. Mm. It's all about where you know yourself to be. I like the sauce in between my crevices. Anyway, that's going to do it for Four Year Inflammation. I'm Zach Graham. And I'm John Kaplan. Watch a new movie this week and uh, be on a mission from God. Try listening to God every once in a while. Maybe he has something good to say. Probably not, though. (laughs) Let's see you guys. Wait, was that Disturbed? That did the Sound of Silence cover? Yes. I have to look this up. Okay. (laughs) Yes, you are right. For some reason, I wanted to say that it was Five Finger Death Punch. Uh, Same difference. I, uh, Kill Switch Engage, uh, Five Finger Death Punch, um, you know, those types of bits. Like, uh, bands that have, like, um, like, really, like, in-your-face and crappy graphic t-shirts. Exactly. Um, edgy slogan and impact font. Yeah, something like that. Um, <laughs> I, have we talked about the whole douchecore butt rock Venn diagram? Oh, uh, 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 like personally or on the podcast? On the podcast. No, I don't think we have. Oh, okay. We might need to introduce that idea at some point because like, you know, you have the Venn diagram of where there's like butt rock on one side and we all know about butt rock and then there's douchecore on the other side. And I think Disturbed is like squarely in the douchecore category. Um, bands oh, absolutely. Like, um, Hollywood Undead uh, goes over there. Uh, yeah, um, freaking, uh, why can't I think of their name? Uh, they do, uh... Trapped. Ah, uh, uh, why can't I think of the name? Uh, fuck it, they do... What's that song called? Buckcherry. Buckcherry is douchecore. Hey, y'all crazy, but... Like, if that song was supposed to be, like, funny and not serious at all, it would be great. But the fact that they are, they are completely serious. They are, and then in the middle is Nickelback. Nickelback is both. Nickelback is the true great equalizer.